Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inders, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Christopher Bartel, the author of a Game Studies publication from 2020 called Video Games, Violence, and the Ethics of Fantasy. The publisher is Bloomsbury. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice, and share this episode, or all the others, with your friends. And now, back to the show. Is it ever morally wrong to enjoy fantasizing about immoral things? Many video games allow players to commit numerous violent and immoral acts, but should players worry about the morality of their virtual actions? Let's hope that after our conversation, we will have found a good and solid or clear answer to that very question, or maybe more questions for an upcoming podcast talk. Chris, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Chris, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and your line of work, as they say. Sure. Um, I'm a professor of philosophy at Appalachian State University in North Carolina. Um, I've been here about 16 years, I think. I primarily um, work in aesthetics and philosophy of art, but I'm currently... um, working to develop a specialism in technology ethics as well. I really like the way that um, video games kind of intersects with interesting stuff in technology ethics. So I've been, I've been slowly getting sucked in that direction. Um, before I became a philosopher, I was actually a punk musician for a long time. Um, mm. I worked as a um, sound engineer for um, a while and uh, I wasn't a very good musician. I mean, luckily, you know, you don't have to be good to be punk. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was still bad enough that I really shouldn't have pursued a career in it. So then I eventually transitioned um, to philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started doing philosophy, uh, my early work was primarily focused on philosophy of music. Um, but then I got really interested in um, doing stuff on video games about 10 years ago. Uh, and that's been the the primary focus of my research since then. Um, most of my work uh, today is is largely in video games, um, but I also really am interested in where it intersects with uh, media ethics and technology ethics. Hmm. 
Now, since we are called Game Studies, the special series, of course, we have to check for you Ludo Street credibility. Please tell us, what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you are playing right now? Yeah, favorite game is a tough one because there's so many. Um, I particularly end up playing a lot of um, RPGs and particularly high fantasy RPGs. Um, so things like Elder Scrolls, uh, the Dragon Age series, um, the Shadow of Mordor games, I really enjoyed those. Um, two really like standout favorite games for me are um, Horizon Zero Dawn and um, Ghost of Tsushima. I, I absolutely love the combat in Ghost of Tsushima. I love the way that when you change stances, it's almost it becomes like a dance. Like the way that combat flows in that game is so beautiful. Um, what am I playing at the moment? I I end up playing more uh, Clash Royale than I intend to. Um, <laughs> that's often hard to put down. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I recently just played, th this is old, so don't laugh at me, but um, I recently just uh, played through The Witcher 3, mm -hmm. and I'm working my way through some of the, the DLC at the moment. I'm doing the, the Hearts of Stone DLC at the moment. Yeah, so you will blink and it, it'll, be, uh, it'll be October. <laughs> I know, really. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, circling back to your book now, um, mm -hmm. Tell our listeners, please, how did you come to write video games, violence, and the ethics of fantasy in the first place? Um, thanks for asking. I, it actually, um, I started writing the book in this incredibly stunning bout of arrogance. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, I, oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to start writing a book. You know, yeah. it's total arrogance. Um, I this was about ten years ago. I was redesigning a class, and I wanted to um, introduce my students to video game studies. But I, I, you know, started reading around at different essays and trying to figure out what I wanted to cover. And I found this one essay um, by um, a philosopher. His name is Morgan Luck. Um, it's an essay called The Gamer's Dilemma. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with the problem that the essay describes. So really quickly, um, The Gamer's Dilemma is this idea that um, we often commit acts of violence in video games. And very often we we dismiss or we explain away why it is that I'm playing a violent game um, on the grounds that I'm not causing anybody any actual harm, right? So the standard argument is um, it's perfectly permissible for me to do violent things in a game because nobody's actually harmed. There is no real person being affected by this. But, so Morgan Luck points out that that's a, a, that's a logical inference that's actually extremely general. Like it should be that if I can defend virtual murder in a game, then I should be able to defend almost anything because nobody's actually harmed, right? It's the same natural inference. If I can murder people in, in, and this is what Morgan Luck says, he says, if I can murder people in a game because nobody's actually harmed, then what about, you know, if I develop a game about virtual pedophilia, should I be able to sexually molest children because nobody's actually harmed? So now the dilemma is intuitively we feel like that's wrong, right? Intuitively we feel like violence is permissible, but sexual assault against children is obviously not permissible. And Morgan points out what you need is a philosophical distinction between 
why it is that one thing is okay when nobody's actually harmed, but the other thing is not okay, even though nobody's actually harmed. So that's the gamer's dilemma. Um, I read his essay, and as I said, in a stunning bout of arrogance, I thought, I can solve this problem. Um, so I, I quickly wrote an essay. My essay was titled Resolving the Gamer's Dilemma, and I fired it off, and it got published, and I kind of I washed my hands of it. I thought, there it is. I just, I just solved this big problem. Um, and then I know, you know, a couple months later, people started commenting on my essay, and um, I started to realize that I did not solve anything at all. Um, <laughs> I, the answer that I gave was a really nice first start, but it, it wasn't a solution. There was one um, philosopher who's now a friend. Um, her name is Stephanie Patridge. She wrote this really interesting critique of my essay that, like, that really pointed out to me that I was wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's where I started writing the book. I realized that if I really wanted to solve this problem of the gamer's dilemma, it was not an essay-sized thought. Yeah. Um, I'm the kind of academic that, like, I tend to think in essay-sized thoughts. There are other academics that I'm super jealous of that seem to often think in book-sized thoughts. I don't mm. think in book-sized thoughts. Mm. But I realized that, that answering the gamer's dilemma really required a book. And then it occurred to me that, well, maybe I could do that. So I started writing. Yeah. So this almost, um, yeah, I'm just intrigued. Yeah, the the essay length that seems to be, I think both have, has its charms. And it's not that the one is easier than the other, actually, right? You mean between writing an essay or writing yeah. a book? I mean, that's yeah. what we keep telling our students, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's obviously shorter, but that's not the trick. That's not the one trick pony. That's not the trick. Try. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah. you're exactly right. It's not the trick. I have a, so um, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but I have a friend um, at the university that I work to who I think is a brilliant philosopher, and I think he needs to write a book, and he absolutely refuses to do so. And I keep trying to tell him that, like, the difference between writing a book and writing an essay is, like, it, or the, the way that you should know that you're ready to write a book is if you've written three essays on the same topic, I mm. mean, that's a book. You've got yeah. three essays on the same topic. All you need is an introduction and a concluding chapter, and you've got a five-chapter book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe. So that's what, yeah. Um, that argument doesn't seem to work on my colleague, but I'm going to keep working away at him. <laughs> yeah. Next, I will, I will, I will track you down on this one because it's really, because it seems to be a, a typical humanities topic, right? We are some sort of the last, the last man standing, defending the the big, the big books actually. Because whenever I t- I keep talking to my friends, uh, scientists out there, was like, why do why do you, why do you people? That's what they say. Why do you people still write these massive books? <laughs> Obviously, they haven't talked to historians a lot but okay <laughs> what yeah, do i know exactly. so um it is said, a good question though yeah, why do we books yeah. yeah there's a lot, of, a lot of paper wasted man <laughs> good paper it's getting so expensive yeah. it is so as you said no one there, there's this argument that no one is actually harmed by committing a violence act in a game and uh, right. it cannot be morally wrong quote here to perform such acts um so what is this this if we if we try to nail down this this very issue at hand what are we talking about here exactly I think the interesting thing about the gamer's dilemma is 
that there is this intuition that there is there's still something wrong right like you could be totally hardcore about this and you could insist that um the gamer's dilemma is in fact not a dilemma at all because if you're really committed to the idea that if nobody is harmed then therefore you can do anything you want in a game um you should be perfectly fine with pedophilia video games then because you know you're really committed to this idea that nobody's actually harmed but the issue then is that that feels wrong intuitively it seems like but there's got to be a even though nobody's actually harmed there's some kind of moral limit here um one thing that i really want to point out to your listeners is that what i'm interested in is the moral question of when do i feel like what i've done in the game is wrong i'm not at all interested in um the political question so here's a political question um should we ban violence in video games? That's not a question I'm interested in answering at all. I'm not worried about, because it's a political question in the sense that when you're talking about banning something, what you're really talking about is, can I use the power of the state to force people to play games the way that I want them to? Or can I use the power of the state to restrict this, that, or the other? I'm not talking about that at all. I'm not talking about what we can use the power of the state to do. What I'm talking about is... um, there's still this interesting moral judgment. If, um, if you know, we met up for a drink one day and I told you, yeah, I spent the whole weekend playing pedophilia video games, I think you'd be freaked out by that, right? I think you'd, you'd think less of me. You'd make a judgment about the kind of person I am and you'd try to distance yourself from me. And I think rightly so, right? Um, that's the thing I'm interested in explaining is that there is still this moral judgment. Um, some ga- like some games seem to be beyond the pale of, of what is acceptable. And I'm interested in figuring out what is that line? What is the line between what is beyond the pale of what is acceptable? Um, I can give you two examples. Um, I often tell my students this, that when we talk about violence in video games, they, my students tend to bring up examples of violence in games that are actually boring examples. Right. The, the examples that they come up with are Call of Duty and Grand Theft Auto. And yeah, violent things happen in those games. But if you compare them to other games, they ain't shit. In terms of violence, there are far, there are far darker things out there in the world. Um, two games that I tell my students about and I absolutely like really drive home to them, please, for the love of God, don't try to play these games. But... Um, there's a game called Battle Raper. Uh, it was published in 2006. It's a Japanese game. Um, it's a game, it's kind of like Mortal Kombat, right? The, um, it's two players punching each other. Um, and when you beat up female opponents, their clothes fall off. And when the, the opponent is finally defeated and she's lying on the ground, you have the option to rape her. That's that's kind of beyond the pale. Like, you could insist to me that, oh, but nobody's actually harmed, and you're right, nobody is actually harmed, but I still feel like if you told me you spent the weekend playing that, I'd think less of you. And I want to figure out... Here's another example. There's a, a game um, from 2004, I think. Um, it, I, maybe that's not the right year. It's the early 2000s. Um, it's a game called Ethnic Cleansing. Um, oh, yeah. Have you heard of this? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's a game where you play as a white supremacist and your job is to um, ex- you, your job is to massacre as many black, Hispanic and Jewish people as you can throughout the game. And I feel like that's beyond the pale. I feel like even though nobody is technically actually harmed, there's something wrong there. There's something wrong about wanting to play that game. So that's what my book is trying to figure out. What is that line between what is wrong to play and what is permissible to play? So just out of curiosity now, um, I was wondering if uh, if a player would if a player knew that um, he's playing a game of a publisher, let's say um, a, even a large or big publishing house that um, uses its miss actually abuses his, his or her workforce, let's say in crunch time for half a year, or the, the these production paradigms where people have to get this um, very um, very rare materials out of uh, out of Congo's earth or something like this, for example. Now, just only blue. This would be a would, would this be a game changer in your uh, argumentation then? That's a great question. And I don't, I'm sorry to say, I don't actually talk about that in the book, um, but I'm thinking about these issues at the moment. And uh, I just actually wrote an essay for, um, I just wrote an essay about this that I think is going to be published next year. Um, the, and the essay deals with your example of like um, coltan. Coltan is a, a mineral that's mined in the Congo that goes into you know, every video game console and every iPhone that, you know, gets sold around the world. And they're usually, um, it's mined through extremely exploitative practices. And that raises a really great moral question of like, should I feel bad about having an iPhone? Um, the short answer is, well, kind of, yeah. The, the longer answer is, um, I find it so interesting that this is an issue that comes up not just in video games, but in all different kinds of art forms and cultural products all over the place. Um, if I watch a movie and I find out that the actors in the movie were exploited to get their performances right, um, would that change my attitudes of the movie? Well, in some cases it does. In some cases, perhaps it doesn't. And I'm interested in what's the difference between that. Um, why is it that in some cases it bothers me and in other cases it doesn't? Um You know the Stanley Kubrick movie, The Shining, right? It's a really famous um, horror movie. Uh, it turns out that um, the lead actress in that was like emotionally abused on set. Um, and that's how they got the, the really raw performance out of her. And that, you know, that does make me wonder, well, what kind of director is Kubrick? Is is You know, was that okay? Was that morally permissible? Um, can you really just abuse anybody you like for the sake of art? Or are there limits to the amount that I can abuse people in order to create a great movie? Um, so, so one thing to notice is like how widespread this is. Um, your example of suppose I find out that um, a video game company really exploited their labor force in order to get a game published on time. Um, which would never happen which would never happen of course which would, I cannot this is pure fantasy pure fantasy <laughs> total hypothetical yeah um, 
But it's it's interesting how um, sometimes fans really do push back against that. Sometimes they don't. Um, I suspect that sometimes fans don't push back against that because maybe they don't have the moral sensitivity to recognize that there is a real issue here. So I do think that there is something kind of morally at stake. Um, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who thinks that playing violent games makes you a bad person. Um, I play loads of violent games. Um, I've been playing games since, you know, the early eighties. And when I think about the number of things that I've massacred in games for the past couple of decades, yeah, I play a lot of violent games too. But, um, I wonder if, in some of, and it, I'm not saying that video games are at fault here, but in many respects, um, maybe there are you know moral um, inadequacies that we have that we're we're not really engaging with the moral issues in the right kind of way, and so we we look past abuses of labor forces because you know we're not we're not really thinking deeply about how wrong this really is. Yeah. Well, it's funny somehow that this is something that seems to, I mean, <laughs> a little sidetracking now, but it's funny to me that somehow I've got the feeling this is this is something game studies for a long time, just they closed their eyes to it. And now since, since people like uh, Jason Schreier, actually a gaming journalist, you know, um, talking about these things like the, the workforce issues or, or unionization, for example, really strange that um game research has hasn't had that on their radar for a long time i find it yeah i mean i wonder what you think about this i'd be interested to hear if other people's impression about game studies as an academic discipline is like mine um i find it interesting that game studies is this academic um, discipline that is very interdisciplinary but it's interdisciplinary in the way that there is no central like academic core. Um, in some fields, some fields are interdisciplinary in the sense that there is one discipline that kind of makes up the core of the study. And then there are other disciplines that study it like um, history of science. History of science is a really interesting interdisciplinary field where at the core of it are the sciences, but then, you know, the secondary disciplines that participate are sociology and history and philosophy and so on. Um, game studies isn't like that. There is no academic discipline that is like the core of game studies. Instead, we're all divided up into these little fiefdoms that are only recently starting to talk to each other, um, which I find really disappointing. Like I, there should be more crossover. Um, but if you do game studies, you might come from, um, psychology you might come from the social sciences um you might come from media and literary studies you might come from analytic philosophy and weirdly these are all like little fiefdoms that don't talk to each other very much i so when you mentioned that um you know big issues of uh, the exploitation of labor forces um that's a that's a moral topic that particularly analytic philosophers in game studies don't talk about at all. They just completely ignore it. On the other hand, um, game studies philosophers that come from a more continental side, um, who you know are more uh, uh, active in the the media studies landscape of game studies, 
they've been talking about that ish- issue for at least 10 years, possibly um, 15. Um, yeah, there's a great book. Um, ga- oh, I'm going to totally screw up the title now. I think it's Games of Empire. Um, Games of Empire, I think, was published in 2009. I need uh, I need to look that up. Um, if you want a reference, I can send it to you. But like, there have been people talking about this for a while, but not in, you know, not in analytic philosophy, definitely not in psychology of game studies and not in the sociology of game studies and so on. Yeah. I don't, am I totally way off there? Is game studies a fiefdom? Difficult question. I was just talking to um, a friend of mine. We, um, uh, we wrote together a book called Hashtag Game Studies about this very topic The for German-speaking countries, whether we were thinking about um, is it actually a good th- – is, is it actually the way to go? Do we need to find our way into – it's a big we now <laughs> – we find our way into the one discipline, right? Right now, it's just a field of study. But um, and tra- and traditionally in Germany, I have the feeling that if you know you know if you want the grants, if you want to be reckoned as this field, you need to go this way actually. But on the other hand, maybe this is just a thinking of the past, you know, because lots lo- there seem to be lots of of so-called what I, lo- I like to call them anchor uh, topics where lots of people can use this actually this object or this this practice coming from other disciplines and use it for their very fruitful uh, research is going on no question but um there have we have reached this glass ceiling somehow and yeah we are stuck right basically so uh, lots of lots of lots of interesting stuff happening this would be an of course an own topic for an own conversation and we need to regroup somehow and talking about this because this is really fruitful it's a really good quite brilliant conversation so but circling back to your book um let's say video games are these 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 works of fiction that enable players to entertain a fantasy so a full understanding of the ethical criticism of video games must focus attention on why individual players are motivated to entertain immoral and violent fantasies. So I wonder, how do you understand the term fantasy in your book? And why do you consider it as fruitful in your argumentation? Yeah. um, First, I I mean, obviously, video games are works of fiction, right? Um, But I think more than that, they're they often offer players ways and they're, they're often marketed for exactly this. They offer players ways of experiencing life or, or events or experiences that they otherwise wouldn't get to experience. Um, which I think puts it more in the realm of a fantasy than, um, than just an abstract work to work of fiction. Um, in thinking about fantasies, one thing we should first notice that there's a difference in the way that a fantasy functions for an individual psychologically. Um, there are some fantasies that you could describe as idle fantasies. These are cases where a thought pops into your head um, and maybe you play with that thought for a little bit, or maybe you think, ah, oh, that's weird. I, I wonder where that thought came from. And then you set it aside. Right. We, um, lots of people have idle fantasies all day long. 
right? I get mad at my boss and I imagine punching him, punching him in the face. Um, and then I put that thought aside and I don't really, you know, I don't return to it. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's just a weird thought that popped into my head. But there are other fantasies that are not idle fantasies. You could think of them as, um, as active fantasies. There are ideas that I come back to over and over again, that I rehearse them in my head. I think about them often. Um, these are fantasies that really mean something to me. They like, they make up a substantial part of my personality. They make up part of my, um, maybe even my goals, my dreams, my desires. Those are the kinds of fantasies that I think are really interesting. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, the games that I tend to play tend to be um, high fantasy RPGs. And that's, I mean, that must be a personality trait of mine. There's something about that kind of fantasy that resonates for me in some kind of way. That's a, that's a kind of fantasy that I, I appreciate. I have other students, um, when I, I teach um, a philosophy and video games class at my university, and I get loads of students who the only game they ever play is Call of Duty, um, and for those students, they have a really profound like soldier fantasy that they they imagine themselves being this powerful soldier, and they they care about that so much that they do this for dozens of hours a week, right? Playing Call of Duty, and a lot of them kind of really internalize that identity of being this you know fantasy soldier. Um, I think it's interesting to think about players' fantasies in connection to um, this moral question of what you should or shouldn't do in a game for two main reasons. Um, first, I think it's obvious that games appeal to our fantasies, right? Like the the Call of Duty players that I was just talking to, I'm sure that the game is designed to appeal to that kind of person. Um, and then the second reason why I like talking about fantasies for this is because um, I fully accept the idea that comes from psychologists that there isn't really a strong connection between playing a violent game and committing acts of real world violence. Um, so thinking about the issue that we talked about earlier, um, the issue being that th there are some games that seem like they're beyond the pale. I think the reason why some games strike us as being beyond the pale is because of their connection to a player's fantasies. Like, again, if I told you that I spent the weekend playing ethnic cleansing, I think you would think less of me. And the reason for that is because you'd assume that there's some, there's some part of my, my psychology or my personality that resonates with the ideas in a game like ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, let's talk about two certain game culture groups um, you are mentioning, and you extensively write about in your book. And this, they are so the so-called fictionalists on the one hand, and the ludologists on the other. And mm -hmm. you do actually mention them pretty early on in your book. And I'm sure that our listeners would love to learn more about them and how you would define them. Yes. Um, well, first, I should apologize to your listeners that the word um, ludology gets used in game studies to mean so many different things. Um, it, it's a word that almost gets overused a bit, but I'm using it in this very specific context. So um, if we start with the start with the um, 
the gamer's dilemma, right? The idea that um, there's there are some things that we do in games like acts of violence that we dismiss them as being um, they're, they're perfectly permissible because nobody is actually harmed. Um, some philosophers take what I call an amoralist stance. The the amoralist is somebody who generalizes that idea um, and insists that um, you cannot apply any kind of moral criticism to video games at all. Video games should be this amoral or morality-free thing that we do. Um, and you can't criticize what a person does in a game because nobody's actually harmed. That's broadly speaking the idea of amoralism, right? That uh, moral criticism doesn't apply to video games. But amoralists themselves actually give different reasons why you should you should never bother bringing real world morality into video games. And those um, those people kind of break down into two rough groups that I'm calling the fictionalists and the the ludologists. The ludologists are people who insist that um, you can't bring real-world morality into video games because it is just a game. Um, and they're people who argue that a game is a system of rules, um, and it's a system of rules that is separate from the real-world rules of morality. Right? This comes back. This comes from um, Johann Huizinga's idea of the magic circle. And even though a lot of people today reject the idea of the magic circle nonetheless a lot of people really still like the idea that games are systems of rules that are distinct from real world systems of rules and all you do when you play a game is you just um have this social contract where you agree when we're playing the game that we suspend real world morality um though that's what i'm calling a ludologist somebody who believes that real-world morality doesn't arise in games because they're separate systems of rules. Opposed to those are the, and not really opposed, but a different group is the fictionalists who do kind of the same thing. They argue that real-world morality doesn't arise in video games, not because it's a, a system of rules like a game, but instead because it's a work of fiction. And because um, players are supposedly supposed to be good at distinguishing between fiction and reality, then games should be free from any kind of real world moral constraints. I argue against both of those. I think amoralism generally doesn't work because the games that are beyond the pale, we have to explain those somehow. And I can't really dismiss them as mere works of fiction or mere games. Like particularly think of the ludologist position, um, it's, uh, you know, you can't bring real world morality in because a game is just a system of rules. Well, you know, ethnic cleansing is just a system of rules. Um, if I insist that, well, I just really like playing first person shooters, then you should have no problem with me playing that game. And yet that seems wrong. Like intuitively, that seems wrong. It seems like, but that's still beyond the pale of what's acceptable. So the, the ludologist's view of amoralism doesn't seem to hold. It seems really shallow when I'm talking about a game like ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And on the other hand, it makes no sense to me since the, the, the actual practice of an ethical cleansing clearly follows a very, a very strict kind of, kind of strict 
um, strategy and implementation. So these, how mm. can these, how could the, how how you can even think that these uh, these kind of maneuvers could be without any kind of morality behind them? This strikes me as really yeah. an odd position. Yeah, I think to to play the game, you have to recognize the moral thing that's happening like that's part of what playing the game is mm. and the sad thing is that players who are fans of the game recognize the moral thing that's happening and they celebrate it yeah yeah and again like to go back i think they celebrate it because it speaks to something about their own psychology and their own fantasies and their own desires and wishes mm. that's what we should be worried about yeah in your uh, third chapter, you offer a brief overview of selected theories of ethics, and it helped me a lot, to be honest, in order to fully understand your argument. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, to be honest. <laughs> so that was very good. <laughs> But uh, could you please disclose the big secret, which ones you have picked and, and why? So in the third chapter, um, there are lots of different systems of ethics, but within um, Western philosophy, the main, the main three theories that people end up talking about are consequentialism, um, Kantian deontology, and virtue ethics. Um, and that's not to say that those are the only three ethical theories that are out there, but they're, they're such big theories that every other ethical theory that anybody develops has to kind of respond to the big three. Um, and in the book, I actually defend a virtue ethical account. Um, the reason why I like virtue ethics is generally because I think it's able to explain something about morality that the other two big theories struggle with. Um, so the consequentialist theory is the idea that something is morally right or wrong based on its consequences. Um, so we can't really determine whether something is right or wrong in the abstract, we have to look at the consequences of, of the action and only after the fact realize whether it was right or wrong. Um, the other big Western theory is Kantian deontology, um, based on the idea of um, respect and autonomy. Um, the, the big moral sin for Kant is to treat another person as a means to an end. Um, both of those theories are are really interesting and profound, but I think that they struggle with um, being a, with making character judgments of other human beings, which is something that we do really often. Um, we often describe people as being um, honest or trustworthy or brave. And in those cases, I'm not really making saying something about the consequences of their action. And I'm not really saying something about their Kantian respect for, you know, um, the, the, um, the categorical imperative. I'm saying something about their standing personality traits and I'm evaluating them, right? I'm saying it's a good thing that this person is brave. Um, so virtue ethics is able to explain how we make character judgments of people while the other theories kind of don't. I also like virtue ethics because um it within like classical virtue ethics the the reason why you want to live ethically um isn't we we try to do good things and we try to live ethically not for the sake of other people but actually for our own sakes that um that it, it's the route to living a a fulfilled and happy life 
And that kind of resonates with me. That that offers a for me a good explanation of why ethics matters in the first place. Yeah. Well, since we have talked about game studies a little bit, I think I can skip now a certain kind of questions. Da, 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 da. But, of course, the first one is still a strong question to be asked. Um, in our final round now, so to speak, I'd like to ask my guests for a little meta-reflection. What aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your book that did not make the cut? Mm, uh, thanks for asking. That's I had to think about that for a minute. Um, I didn't actually cut very much from the book when it came to editing, um, except for this one. I remember this one paragraph that I was in love with that I <laughs> I wanted to find a way to put into the book, but I, in the end, I couldn't. Um, the thing that I wasn't able to talk about in the book was um, I had this. In an earlier draft, I had this very long paragraph about gaming communities and the lack of diversity in gaming communities and how that has a, has a bad impact on um, the development of the industry and the development of gaming as a culture. Um, so I had this long paragraph that was like a plead for greater tolerance and greater um, diversity in gaming communities. And I found myself, I kept moving that paragraph from one area of the book to the next because it didn't fit anywhere at all. Um, I still, I liked it enough that I didn't want to get rid of it. So I ended up cutting that paragraph in half and making it into a footnote. But um, that's something that I wanted to talk about. Um, after the book was published, I then started reading um, things about uh, Coltan production um, and the impact that that has on the gaming industry. And that's something that I, I also, like I said earlier, didn't talk about in the book, but I'm interested in now and want to do more work in that direction. Yeah. Well, I just had to to laugh a little bit because I think it was back in 2007 or eight, And um, um, I was in a, at a game studies conference and um, one scholar from, I think... I can't remember, maybe Canada or, or the US, because he was mentioning, oh, uh, yeah, that's that. If you can't decide where to put your content, put just put it into a footnote. But you should know, he shouldn't, he was addressing me, you should know, because that's such a um, German thing to do. And at that time, I didn't know what he meant by that. But um, yeah, I. So you wouldn't know, right? Because I, th I really thought hard about it. Is this a, some sort of a German tradition uh, that that we are known for worldwide? It's just <laughs> not, not being able to decide whether this should be part or should it be important. No, no, no. So I'm I'm glad. Yeah, I'm <laughs> left me. Left uh, me you know the you know the Germans and their use of a footnote. Yeah, you know them. <laughs> Don't trust them. Never trust a man who won't, who is not able to decide whether to put his content. Oh, <laughs> well, Chris, okay. We've taken a lot of your time. So final question. Uh, what are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next? Except for uh, the, um, of course, Witcher 3 DLC. That doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that doesn't count. Um, right now, I'm, I'm actually working on my second book. Um, the second book is a much broader general account of the aesthetics of video games. 
Um, that's under contract with Bloomsbury. I I hope to have the whole text written by the end of this year, so maybe it'll be out next year. Um, at least that's the hope. Um, we'll see what, what actually happens. And what am I um, hoping to play next? I'm kind of stuck at the moment between a whole bunch of things that um, I, I don't have anything I'm really excited about, except um, my daughter and I were are really big fans of Stardew Valley, and the uh, yeah the maker of Stardew Valley has a new game coming out. It's called Haunted Chocolatier, um, but he hasn't released. He hasn't announced what the release date is. So we're just kind of like twiddling our thumbs, waiting for Haunted Chocolatier. Um, that's what we're hoping to get to. You know, once it's released. Great. <laughs> that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. And I think I haven't been having this kind of very vivid conversation about all kinds of topics. It was really great talking to you. So uh, thank you very much again. Um, yeah, take thank care. you so much for having me. This was, this was loads of fun. And goodbye. Yep. So... Dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of game studies or game research yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. See you in a bit.